This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode is part of a series of episodes specifically anchored around Plant-Based World Expo. It is presented by Plant-Based World Expo and has been produced in collaboration with Plant-Based World Expo. Chef Paula Patel, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me, Nell. So this is going to be a fun conversation. Firstly, we've met each other or been introduced to each other a few times at, twice actually, both times at Plant-Based World. So this is a a great coincidence that we happen to be here with Ben Davis, who's co-hosting this episode. I always find myself in a rush over there. We never really get to have a conversation. So I'm I'm glad we finally get to sit down and, and talk. So firstly, I'm excited about that. Also, of course, having you on the show and then having Ben involved uh, is just going to make this such an interesting conversation. I can't wait to dive in. But before we get into the details of some of the great work you're doing today, let's let's go back. Let's um, We're talking about food after all. So I'd love to know more about your earliest memories of food. Oh, that is such a juicy question. Um, my earliest food memory, um, I was quite a, a precocious child. And one of my favorite memories is I would, no matter how young I was, I always found a way to leave the house. Uh, I was born and raised in India. So as early as I can remember, I would take the little coins that my uncle or aunt or someone, whoever gave me a little bit of money. And the first thing I would do is go out to the streets and eat Indian street food. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So any number of things like you name it, uh, like if there was any money in my hand, it would be at the street vendor like minutes later. So that's, that's really something I, I very fondly remember about growing up and, and really appreciating all of the, the richness of um, street food. As someone who's only ever eaten Americanized Indian food, what are some of those favorite in the actual authentic Indian street food dishes you would eat as a kid? Yeah, the, the first one is uh, Golgappe, or also known as Pani Puri. Um, which is the hollow semolina chip that they uh, poke a hole in, put a potato mixture. They, the guy just like dips his hand into a clay pot of like minty, spicy water and you just pop it. Like they give it to you on a banana, like a banana leaf container and you just have to eat it in one go. Sometimes it makes it, sometimes it doesn't, you're wearing it, but it is such a joyous thing. Um, and and I think like a very quintessential Indian street food experience that I really highly recommend. Um, now in India, there's tons of places that are dedicated for foreigners and even like people like me that have left, um, that they are very strict about using bottled water. It's very, you know, but I grew up there, so it didn't really phase my system. But that is that is <laughs> one of the best memories I have. 
you know, your mouth is burning, but you can't stop eating. <laughs> awesome. I love that you mentioned that because, I mean, I grew up in Bombay, India, and uh, uh, while I did eat street food, I would often not be able to eat it, especially when the uh, when the guy came around in our neighborhood because my, my dad wouldn't allow us to eat from the street cart. Uh, because of the reasons you outlined, the guy putting his um, hand into the, the pot of water, uh, he just said it was not sanitary. We are taking a risk. We shouldn't try it. But obviously, when I was out with my friends and uh, no adult supervision, it was uh, anything was possible. So uh, it's funny you started off with that. Um, what did you grow up at home eating? I, I know you spent your early childhood in India. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, like, uh, what you grew up in India versus when you moved here, and how that started to shift as you, as you went to school and college in the U.S. Yeah, it's really interesting because I I grew up in central India uh, in a state called Madhya Pradesh, which is dead smack in the center of India. Um, I'm by culture Gujarati, which is West Indian. Um, you know, I grew up eating strictly vegetarian, um, so I think the only kind of dairy products that we had was handmade yogurt, um, you know, from like churned buffalo milk. So that was really the extent of my like food knowledge and, and food kind of teachings. Um, I remember, you know, we lived in a multi-generational household. So when kids grow up, uh, however you grow up, that's your normal I always thought everybody grew up in a family of 15 that lived in a three-story home. Turns out that's just my childhood. That's not because when I moved to America, I was like, oh, well, like, where are your aunts and uncles and where's your grandma? And like, where's the housekeeper? Like, no, wow. most people don't grow up like that. Um, I, I had the privilege of living with my extended family. And so, you know, dinners, lunches, breakfast, they became this like, production of kind of coming together, going to the market, you know, uh, with my mom or whoever was around. So that's really kind of how I grew up eating. Uh, very simple. We didn't have a refrigerator. So everything was made, you know, to be consumed. And then you would start over the next day. So this idea of refrigeration and frozen food was quite a novel concept to me um, as a child. Um, and then, you know, come, moving to America and having a refrigerator, that kind of, you know, that brain blowing emoji. I was like, wait, what? What is this? This thing keeps things cold. Like, I'm like, you know, we just had a little cabinet and like we put like, you know, stainless steel containers in there just for half a day until it was time to eat that again. And that was it. That was the extent of refrigeration. So uh, quite a different upbringing than what I stepped into at the age of 12 in the U.S. And did you find your the kind of food you were consuming started to change given, you know, your, your, the friends and, and people you were surrounding yourself with and then just generally being part of uh, a very different place yeah. and a culture that's sort of different when it comes to food? Yeah, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, uh, I'll never forget it, the first day that we landed um, in, at O'Hare, my we stayed with my uncle for a couple of uh months before moving to Atlanta and he ordered Taco Bell and Pizza Hut so just to give you context i mean like i had never seen cheese before so one part of me is so excited that i'm in this new country and you know i was always the one that like ventured out i was always the adventurous one so i was like ooh yeah but i got to tell you like cheese was hard to eat like you know, so I, I went from that to going to high school and trying chicken nuggets and crystal burgers, like for a short period before I kind of knocked some sense into myself. And I was like, wait, and we I lied to my parents, as most immigrant kids do. We don't, you know, if they if they said, do you eat meat at school? I was like, no, I don't eat meat. Um, but I definitely was trading my tater tots for other gnarly lunch meat. Um <laughs> for a short period of time to fit in. Um, and it kind of carried on until, you know, I never really ate beef or pork, but, um, you know, a little bit of chicken, some fish, um, just, you know, little things that like are so common, I guess, when I really think back to 
lunch school lunches or or popular places that kids eat that's just kind of you know standard and so i wanted to fit in and so i started eating that stuff <laughs> when did you start thinking about cooking i mean was that something that you just did very young and always had a passion for was that something you developed later in life um was there a moment or any tell me how that that interest started yeah i i had this as i'm like writing this cookbook i i had a lot of conversations with my parents turns out when i was younger and i now was reminded of these memories i really loved entertaining so i would beg my parents to let me make stuff for guests when they came over and one particular dish i would take like bread cut it up kind of like a stir fried panzanella and i would put spices in a pan and i'd stir fry the bread and make them make the guest tea that was my contribution as an you know young adult um to go in the kitchen and cook for them and then you know when i moved here i i the only station that we had to watch like my kid my siblings wanted to watch sesame street Meanwhile, I would fight them for the remote because I wanted to watch Jock and Julia. Um, and so I was enamored by watching them cook. And, and it just kind of like lit up this fascination of like, what did they bring from the market? And what is Jacques going to do with those carrots? Um, so fascinated. And I must have watched, I mean, endless amounts of Julia Child on PBS growing up. Um, and then, like, I think, it just always was in the background and i carried on kind of doing the thing that my parents wanted me to do and focus on you know stable steady job like go the business route you know move up the corporate rank so that kind of dream just like ended up just being a side thing where i was like doing at home but nothing i i didn't even think of it as a career until much much later um probably in my like mid 20s um when it actually occurred to me that i might not be happy going the route that i was going and might want to actually cook for a living but you did spend a lot of time in the corporate world right so this isn't just uh, okay. a few years here and then you you decided to pivot you you spent over a decade i did i spent i i want to say 13 or 14 years um Yeah, it was a a long because again I just, you know, coming out of school, I looked into culinary school and my parents were like absolutely not. And when you're coming out of school and back then, I mean, culinary school was never cheap, but coming out as a young adult and being like, wait, school is almost 40,000 or 50,000. And I like and no one was going to pay for it. My parents weren't going to pay for it, and I was like, there's no way I'm taking out more loans. So I kind of was like, yeah, fine. You know, I I decided to put the dream to the side and and work my way in corporate America thinking eventually I will figure out something and that led to a move to San Francisco. And I was like, well, maybe if I move to the other side of the country, I'll do whatever I want and they won't be wise to it. And um I carried on doing the corporate thing and got trained to be a personal chef um on the weekends and through a organization and I started a side business because I was like, well, I'm going to cook one way or the other. Um made really good money for someone who was not trained, was just kind of doing it on a whim like I was like that tastes good. I'm going to do that. I mean, I used to cook for like hedge fund guys in San Francisco, you know, charging like $1000 for a dinner. I mean, it was like it was good money for someone who's you know not trained and in their 20s making money like on the weekends while all my friends were at a bar i was like oh, i'm going to go cater a party <laughs> um so that's kind of how um the the culinary kind of spark started is just moonlighting and knowing that somehow some way i was going to end up in it full time um you know Yeah, I mean it sounds like you always kind of knew and it was just a and whether you even though maybe into on an intellectual level you were trying to suppress that part of you it seems like there's there's no way you could have kept it down and you found a way for it to come out um so it's no surprise here you are now in 2022 and this is this is what you're known for um I think it's 
I'm sure Ben can relate to this. I'm just going to let Ben chime in here because it's there's always this push and pull between, and I've had this own this go on in my life as well. I spent, uh, I went to law school. I was a lawyer for a while. I had a decade in the corporate world, and and part of it was I felt like I needed to you know pay my dues. I needed to do my time, and then I could be creative, which I always felt like I was uh, growing up. But it's I'm sure Ben shares much more of that than than I even I do because of some of his interests that go beyond uh, just the the business of food and events. <laughs> oh no, I was actually <clears throat> excuse me uh, thinking while Pollock was talking about how cool it is that that there's this fusion moment between the corporate world and the the cooking dream where you're doing it on the weekends. So there's a fusion of time, right? You're you're literally breaking your week between the long-term dream, getting that off the ground, and then uh, the the more corporate world. And then you're also you were, it seems like you were serving food to high up corporate folks. That's what made this kind of a a lucrative opportunity for you. So there's both like the time being shared and the the mixture of personalities and people all coming together in a way that allowed you to bring it in and kind of ultimately maybe distill out all of the parts of that that weren't really true to what you wanted to be doing in a full-time capacity and known for and, and make your mark upon the world. And, um, you know, it's just, it's really cool how that, that moment came together. You were willing to do both trusting that there's a moment where you'll kind of really empower yourself to take that next leap. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, looking back, I think the one piece of advice, which I always get asked, like, what would you do differently? I just, I, I should have trusted my intuition um, because I, I had all the makings. It just, you know, back then, you know, we were the first ones here and I didn't really have any friends in the creative space. Like everybody was like working in the corporate or was a lawyer or an engineer and, and no one, no one was doing anything creative in this capacity. And so I, you know, looking back, I probably would have trusted my intuition and, and made some made some moves a, a lot sooner than I did. But you almost never know, right? It probably, for all you know, the time you did uh, spend in in working in a startup and, and doing the work that you did has now informed some of the decisions that you make and maybe you acquired skills that you would have never acquired had you just, you know, taken a leap early on um, and just followed your creative passions but not have established all those other structures and rules that... I'm sure come to serve you well now since you're running a business and launching a bunch of different projects. I, I look back and I wouldn't change anything. And I'm, 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 you know, yeah, we always wonder, what if he started earlier? Why did I waste so much time doing all these other things? But you kind of yeah. never know. I, I think I, I, I would have kept the 10 years. I probably didn't need the extra three or four <laughs> at the tail end. I'll be very honest. Like it was just like watching the clock being like, all right, so T minus what before I can like make the leap, and so yeah, I, I I do appreciate the all of the soft skills that have served me incredibly well, um, you know, in a brand new career. But really, everything is a learning. You know, you never really lose any of these skills, no matter what. If it's people skills, if it's business skills, if it's contract reading, everything is important. Um, in any any career, and, and not to kind of skip too far ahead, but I, you know, I think most people know you for for being on the Food Network. You were you won Chopped. You uh, um, you beat Bobby Flay. You have gone on to do some really uh, really interesting things in the culinary world that would be the envy of anyone who could have who have been setting their sights on this since a young age. And you almost had a late start. Uh, professionally and yet will be able to pretty quickly make a mark for yourself. Where do you find yourself now? I mean, I, I, I think it'll be interesting to to talk about it in the context of where the world is now. I know you, you're on a restaurant, you're working on a cookbook, you kind of alluded to that earlier. Where do you see yourself right now in the world of food as it stands, uh, given all the background you have, the work that you've done, the success that you've had and the recognition that you've received? Uh, where does it stand right now? Um, great question. Um, it's really interesting because while all of those things weren't, you know, necessarily 
me going out to make a mark. It just, you know, they happened. Um, I didn't think that I would win either of those shows, but mm-hmm. it turns out like the cameras don't bother me. The stress doesn't like the, the stress of that environment actually is a beautiful way that I thrive. So in some capacity, it was very much an environment that I was put in that I was made to strive in. Um, now, after that, really, I I think a lot about impact. And I don't mean that in like this like soft sense, but I really truly think about what is it that I want to do with like the second half of my life? Um and it it may or may not look like the the thing that got me here. So, you know, all the accolades and all of that is important. But at the same time, you know, I did just as much work on myself in order to make sure that the next thing that I do is very much aligned with not just what everybody else wants me to do or what the network wants me to do or what I think is going to be next, but truthfully and authentically, what is it that I'm good at and where is that impact going to be um, with the work that I can do? And and that requires a little bit of like soul searching, um, you know, and it's not always 100% a, a PNL or a business plan. It, it's mixed in with that. Um, it's really understanding you and what kind of lights you up and mixing that with, okay, well, what you know, in the business sense, what does that look like? What does it feel like? Um, how is it structured? And so I ask myself those questions at this moment, um, as I get ready to pivot the restaurant, you know, we're thinking about scaling it. And if the concept stays the same, um, you know, or do we scale it to a little bit different? So it can be a national brand, things like that. But at the most of it, like, I really need to understand my why of like, why did I get into this? And how do I stay true to that without falling into the, I'm just building for the sake of building. I think I loved 2020 for that, to be able to step back and really ask myself the why, and then do. That's a great way of looking at it. And in terms of, um, you know, you were at Plant Based World um, this year and previously, with all the recent developments and trends and growth um, we've seen in the plant-based food sector, I know, so your restaurant is an all plant-based uh, Indian concept, right? Um, yes. So uh, how has that influenced some of your thinking, both from a culinary standpoint, seeing these innovative new startups develop products that are mimicking you know, animal products, basically? There's been a lot of hype some really great products, some really great companies. But I think we're starting to reach a point where we've realized that the growth in the products alone without the necessary adjustments and changes to two other things. One is the food system and the structures within the food industry. And then secondly, without changing food culture, uh, are almost not going to realize their full potential. And I think one, two of the missing elements amongst probably a few are those two. And I think the food culture part of it is really lately been fascinating me a lot because it's it's something we just take for granted, like eating habits change, certain foods become trendy and certain foods don't become trendy, but they could make or break certain companies in this case. And maybe the companies that are working on these products don't quite think about, or maybe don't spend enough time thinking about the cultural implications, how much we need to be focusing on flavor and um, formats versus just, you know, creating a burger that bleeds. And that's probably the worst example of it. But there's so much more that can be done with food. Food is not just technology. It's not just mimicking something that existed with less resources. It is that, but it is so much more. How do we... Yeah, I would love your reaction to what's been happening now where everyone talks about the future of food uh, and talks about it very much in technology terms. Uh, when you've been approaching it, obviously, through your career from a very culinary sense, do those two worlds meet? Are you seeing them meet? Is that happening? Um, I think to answer your question, I mean, the a lot of the backlash that I kind of hear and read about is that, right? So from someone who grew up as a vegetarian, like to me, 
not everything needs a replacement, right? So I think we we are seeing this like extraordinary efforts to try to match one to one when it may not always be necessary. I just think the consumer um part of the reason, you know, it was a very conscious choice for me to make it plant-based and everyone thought I was crazy, but the reason I did that is not because you know, I'm here with the banner saying eat this way. The reason I did that so that I could break that like mindset of like plant-based food tastes like this, right? That it just ended up becoming a choice within all of the other things that people ate. So, you know, I'm in a shared space um, and there's tons of other concepts that are not plant-based Um but for me, it was important that I kind of be in the same consideration set as the Philly cheesesteak, as the, you know, chicken wing. And we are, you know, a lot of people will go and half the times they don't even know that they ate, you know, vegan food. They just love what we're making. And so to me, you know, innovation is important. But at the same time, you have to think about the consumer and how they're going to approach. So at the the show, um, I had the privilege of kind of demoing three of the new brands that are in the marketplace with my own twist and, and Indian flavors. And it was like mind blowing to even the brands because they were like, oh, my God, like, you know, I made like a South Indian stir fry, beef stir fry with Chef Chu's beef. And he just, you could see his eyeballs just like, wow. And so to me, I wish that flavor and, and the versatility of the product was also a factor in the innovation. I think we, yes, innovation is very important. Um, you know, streamlining our food system is very important. But at the same time, if people don't know what to do with it and it doesn't taste good, then that innovation is lost. And then it's just crowded because, you know, once one company gets rewarded, everything, everyone that follows suit thinks that they're going to have an exit, like, you know, or they're going to have an IPO, like, and so I think the consumer and their usability and their flavor profile should kind of go into the mix of the larger innovation cycle um, to kind of make it full circle and not just create something and be like, here you go. I think you touched on all the things that got me excited about this year's show. And, you know, two of the, the I, I get the chance to speak to a lot of press. It's one of my main roles uh, besides kind of introducing keynotes and moderating panels is to speak with anyone from the food media, the mainstream media, or anyone, even the, the plant-based and vegan press who come to our show looking to inform people on what the next trends are and, and what's happening in the space. And, it's been a, a strange and kind of challenging year for that. In the past couple of years, it's been a lot easier. It's just been excitement and people talking about what's coming and what's blowing up and who's getting a lot of money and investment. And this year, the questions have been a lot more, uh, they've been requiring me to be a lot more deep and thoughtful for how to really continue to shine a light on the the positive and amazing aspects of growth that are really, in my belief, what needs to be paid attention to right now um, when, you know, maybe more than more than normal, there's negativity that people are are drawn to in certain areas. Um, and sometimes that leans more in the retail space, I feel, because retail has a lot more hard numbers and things to look at and categories and buckets that have been traditionally used. And they're looking for this to make sense in their concepts of those buckets and sales and data. And they look at certain companies and, and they want those companies to measure up to ways that things have made sense um, in maybe traditional meat or, or these other aspects. And I feel like food service and the culinary world in general is where the real amazing growth and innovation is happening. And And I saw that at the show in both retail and food service concepts that frozen entrees and pre-made pre-cooked meals. So you're not just going for that one-to-one -one chicken nugget like we saw a lot of in 2019 and 2021 at the show. It's 
frozen dishes or pre-made dishes that are Indian curries or dumplings or all of these things that clearly required a chef to add their creative love to the food to get it to that end product. Um, and so I see it there. And I also see it in just my own travels around the country and, and restaurants I visit that there is only growth in this space when you're looking at the development of new recipes, the development of new ways to use whole plant foods, to use um, you know, some, some different degrees of processed vegan products to do cool things. Um, it's just an explosion in every city or town I go to. I can now hop off the highway in random towns in Illinois or, or, or Iowa and find a good plant-based meal. And that I know was not the case just, you know, a few years back. Um, you know, so I think that, that adding that love and culinary creativity to something that's already existed, whether it's just a plant the way the earth grew it or something that Chef Chu has developed in his kitchen, but hadn't had that touch of someone else's, uh, you know, deep connection to food to turn into something new, which brings me to that other point that I think was so important about our movement this year that was highlighted at the show, which is the diversity um, that it felt a lot more diverse this year um, and culturally diverse recipes from all around the world, people with different um, perspectives to bring to the table. Um, and you actually spoke on a panel, which I'm curious to ask you about because I was moderating a panel in the next room and it was one of the, the my biggest regrets of the show was not getting to sit on that panel where we actually heard applause through the wall um, <laughs> multiple times. We had to pause and just appreciate. I actually told the, the room what that panel was about so they could understand why there might be applause. But I never actually got to find out what you were talking about that was so exciting. This was the panel that was focused on diversity and inclusion within our movement, within the food industry. And I was wondering if you could just touch a little bit on what, what the key things that were shared or what you took away from that panel and why there was so much energy in that room. Yeah. I mean, you know, first uh, I have to give kudos to um, the folks on the panel that were kind of like my panel mates Um the uh, Deborah, who is um, the mastermind behind uh, the fried chicken Atlas Monroe, um, Chef Chu, who does the beef um, and a couple of fish products. And he's, you know, across different Whole Foods, like very well-known brand. And then the head of diversity um, from a retailer standpoint, so Target. And, and the reason I think, at least from my perspective, that there was a lot of applause is because um, in Deborah and Chu's case, they are one of the few African-Americans that actually have their hand in manufacturing. It is an incredibly difficult feat to build your own manufacturing plant. Deborah turned down a million dollars on Shark Tank. So I think a lot of their stories about, you know, starting from nothing and building these beautiful companies that are just like, you know, there are like lines, like crazy lines for her chicken. You know, she sells out. She's actually been nominated as like best chicken next to real chicken. So I think diversity in the aspect of not only just their demographic, but the food that they're doing and then the um, the new frontier that they're kind of embarking on by building, you know, manufacturing plants on their own. Um, so a lot of the, the conversation was just around um, diversifying in every aspect of that food system, whether it's um, creating a product, whether it's, you know, honing in on manufacturing, whether it's the retailers giving opportunities to brands and having like Chef Choose at, at, you know, at your local Whole Foods. I think it was diversity. And then from my side, diversity from uh, sharing and, and pridefully sharing my culture and food um, with viewers across the country. So I think diversity in that sense had a multifaceted look and, and they all shared some beautiful, beautiful stories. Um, you know, I, I'll never forget it. Deborah said, which you rarely hear in business until this day, it still holds very close to my heart. And she said one advice that she would give people, um, particularly in the con, um, the conference setting, but you know, I, I assume she lives her life that way. But she said, just be kind, you know, and here you always think about like these metrics and these hard things. But really, I mean, kindness, it's a it's a big thing, right? We're talking about plant based, we're talking about compassion, we're not trying to ha harm animals or the planet or whatever your reason is. But 
she said that. And I really thought what a beautiful message to send to people of just doing things out of kindness, like be just be kind to people, be kind to your environment, be kind to anyone you interact with. So um, I really, really did love um, so many, so many little nuggets that they shared during the conference. Um, so, but thank you for telling me that. I'll make sure mm -hmm. that I share that with them. They'll be happy to hear. Absolutely. Thank you. And I appreciate getting, I feel like I was in the room now for a minute, getting to hear your, <laughs> hear your thoughts. Also, I was so glad to hear you were doing this um, sort of uh, cross collaboration from a culinary standpoint. And I'd heard about it that you were you were making you were you're actually cooking some stuff and using some of Ch Chef Chu's uh, products. And I got someone actually ran down the aisle and handed me a sample because. And so uh, I was very grateful for that. Did you do the chicken, uh, Deborah's chicken as well? I did. So I did three um, products. I did a Vindaloo um, pulled pork with um, uh, Keisha Strickland's company and a, a mush meatless mushroom company. Um, so their product won like numerous awards and I don't even think they're commercial yet. <laughs> then Chef Chew's Beef. I did a South Indian curry beef fry. Um and with Deborah's chicken, I did a um, like five pepper uh, dipping sauce and like a dry rub. You know, the, the problem with Deborah's thing, it's perfection. Her chicken is perfect. I, I almost felt bad touching it because I was like, <laughs> I don't know what more I can do to make this more delicious. Like I, I was like, I, I told her, I said, please don't expect any more innovation. I was like, <laughs> you're, you're close to perfect. So I was like, I'm just going to add some elements of me. But I said... I, I don't want to touch this perfection. It's perfect the way it is. And just give me a bucket of it. I'm pretty sure that's the one that I got. Someone ran down the aisle and handed me. It was the the, the chicken um, from her company with with your touch to it. So I'm glad I got to try yeah. a bite. Yeah, I got I got to try the Kerala curry, uh, which was uh, which was great. Which Chef Chew's beef. Yeah the the peppers. Um, so during the demo, the the thing I shared is. Um, the pepper, the spicy or the sweet peppers don't really belong to India. The Portuguese brought those to India. And so the whole, um, uh, the narrative around that was I had like three to four different types of peppers, you know, that Indians use um, in particular, along with, you know, smoked uh, chipotle and just kind of using and celebrating the pepper and making a sauce. Um, and then we just did like a dry rub on top. So um, the story was all about the pepper and how, you know, because they always do that cayenne rub on the fried chicken at the very end. So it's kind of my play on that. It's refreshing to talk about food, <laughs> as, as strange as it may sound, because this podcast for the last five years has been covering food, but maybe not so much from uh, the experience of food and the joy and the flavors and the cultural intersections of food. And I think there's almost ver there's very few events that I end up attending that have that element mixed in with conversations about the business of food. Frankly, I enjoy both equally. Lately, I've been enjoying the culinary side a little bit more than the business side. But I feel like that's that blending of understanding systems, seeing how we can find a way to uh, plug in plant-based products in a creative new way is how we can help change systems. And perhaps we've been only looking at it from one lens, so at least majority of us have only been looking at it from one lens when we need to have more of a conversation about let's 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 make people excited. Let's get them to let's not assume that plant-based has to be just in fast food. We can we can find ways to incorporate the right ingredients, whether it is the the latest uh plant-based meat product or the latest plant-based cheese and incorporate it with 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 um, flavors and spices and culinary culture that dates back to thousands of years. And I think that's where the fun is, really, and that's where maybe we need to be spending more time and attention. I don't think you would disagree with that, Pollock. No, not at all. I I think um, you bring up a beautiful point, which I always share. I think how you develop kind of a healthy balance of it's beautiful to have those, you know, replacement products. And I was very intentional to maybe have just two out of the entire menu because there is a need for that. You know, from a textural standpoint, our brain 
has gotten accustomed for those people that are trying to make that switch, like that texture is absolutely needed, which is why you see the amount of investment and innovation and the funding that goes behind it, because they're trying to play to the way that our brain has learned how to eat. So there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, I'd be remiss as a chef and as an Indian if I didn't borrow this whole plant-based like whole foods that are lentils, legumes, vegetables in their format and also bring that to light, you know. So fine, you came in for the Beyond Burger that we make, which is excellent, but you also next time tried my lentil bowl, which has nothing but goodness in there. And the next time you might have gotten the samosa chat. So I think it's it's a healthy balance of being able to have a few things that excite people that they recognize in formats that they might miss that gets them in the door for them to just then open up to be like, oh, well, you know, I always get that. And that's always a conversation we have. Can you recommend something else? Because they know that they can trust us with that one thing that they love. So now they're more inclined to come back and, and try. So it is a very intentional balance of not really you know, throwing out all this innovation, but still bringing people back to that plant-based value system is eating more plants, not replacing plants with every other thing that is derived from plant. It's just simply eating plants in their format. (laughs) I've been um, lately focusing a lot more on how we don't talk about the context in which food is consumed we we spend all this time talking about the future of food being about you know price taste convenience and taste is thrown in there as, as if it's it's just about mimicry um versus what it is really is being able to serve food in context that people find familiar and what you just described the idea that you create a a pretty a well-crafted menu that intentionally has some options that are meat like but then surrounded by several other options that probably taste the same or even better. So, you know, you can't just try one without wanting to hopefully try something else when you especially in a restaurant context. So in that context, that makes so much sense. You're able to create an experience that gets someone to have a positive experience eating lentils, but also a positive experience eating a Beyond Burger um, versus, you know, just the, the most basic form of both of those uh, foods or ingredients. Uh, and I think context is important because the, you look at the the world of food, it's all about um, different cultures, different environments, different settings. In some some cases, you want to grab fast food, right? That's, that's, that's what you need. That's what you either crave or that's what you can afford or what, that's what is the most convenient choice for you. And in that context, of course, you need to have the right plant-based options. But that's not the only context. And I think those contexts don't exactly move the needle from a cultural standpoint, which is sort of what we need. We need a national, but most likely a global culture shift or mindset shift in what is possible with plants. And that goes beyond just putting a product on a shelf uh, or doing a really innovative marketing campaign. It goes, it, it, goes about, it goes into blowing people's taste buds and making them realize what's possible. Yep. That's the that's the plan. Ben, what do you think? I, I actually I have a, a food systems question that's related to taste and, and culinary innovation. Um, and it kind of relates back to to what I was saying about the retail side of things where, you know, I see I see the appeal of creating a, a product that, you know, take the chicken nugget, for instance, where you make it in a factory, every single one is the same, you put it in a package that's the same, and you push that out onto a shelf and you give people at home the opportunity to have a a plant-based chicken nugget that tastes as good as a plant-based chicken nugget out of the box can taste. Um, But I'm thinking, you know, to what I'm seeing so much more of now, which is these more culturally diverse and chef-inspired entrees and items that are a little bit more, have a more culinary touch than just that um, repeated frozen processed base item. Uh, I know that our friends, the the Sarno brothers, have done some cool stuff with this with Wicked, and I'll take home a, a, a pretty much a whole food, like a tofu fried rice, and throw it in a pan or throw it in the oven, and and I, f- I f- for a moment feel like the Sarno brothers are cooking dinner for me in my house. Of course, it's not the same experience as going to a restaurant or sampling it from a trade show booth. You know, you it's it's a frozen entree still, um, and so I'm curious from your perspective as as a chef and as someone who's no understands the way that that food kind of 
travels in order to get it into a restaurant or get it from a from a, a distributor. What is the fullest potential in your mind of chef inspired prepared or frozen foods that then have to travel to a grocery store? Um, you know, can, can we inspire people around the world through a handful of chefs in their home kitchens creating beautiful uh, dishes that are then processed and frozen to the minimum extent and and shipped? You know, do you feel like that is a potential solution or or avenue to getting more people to try it? Or does that then become frozen food in a way that it doesn't really kind of hit the point of inspiring people to think and eat differently? And that's an interesting question. Um, so you're asking if um, if they're buying chef-inspired um, entrees, if that is inspiring to them. So I understand your question. Or yeah, or more is there a um, market for? Like, would you maybe just personally, would you ever consider doing Dash and Chutney frozen entrees at Whole Foods around the country? Do you, do you think that's a good way to get yeah. your vision out there? And, and would the, the, the drop in quality or taste or experience from freezing it and getting it elsewhere rather than being at your restaurant, do you feel like that's worth the ability to then share it with people around the world and create a new way for people to try your food? Yeah, um, I think in that aspect a couple of things come to mind um you know you do when when you do freeze things there is an element of loss in terms of what it is that i am trying to convey so you do at the very onset have to be incredibly smart about what you decide to put as a frozen product not everything at my restaurant can be converted into a frozen meal and i would never ever advocate for such things just because there, there's, you know, French fries. Like I, I don't want to, like, have things that are like remade and then just decide that I'm just going to throw them in the oven and they're going to be as good as when they come out of the fryer. There's, you're just not going to get that. So, can a menu be designed smartly? Absolutely. And in this case, Indian food is quite at the top of the list when you think about the format because it, it the food just gets better the next day. So if you're really smart about designing, you know, if I take a couple of elements of what we're doing there and I smartly design with that like end step of the consumer coming home, you know, remaking it, reheating it in mind, then yes. And and to tinker the flavor and, and you know, take away from the, the freezing and defrosting process, absolutely can be done, um, but not with every single food. Is it yeah. possible? And as being a chef first, I I lean towards the quality and taste, um, and I over-index on that more so than just let's just stop a label and make sure that everybody gets access. You know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put my name on it. Um, but there are beautiful things like lentils and legumes and, and you know, different, like, lent, different pulses that people haven't tried made in – so many different ways that are made in our home kitchen that you'll never see on a restaurant menu. That's absolutely a great, you know, thing that we can put into a format that gets people excited and, and gives them options. I did a plant-based, you know, restaurant because not because I wanted to convert people, but I wanted people to be inspired so that they could make that decision for themselves. I'm not here to preach. I am not the one to tell you to eat anything. I want your taste buds to decide. And if I've done my job, your taste buds are going to lead you back to me and you'll forget that it's plant-based. And maybe you won't. It doesn't matter to me. But inspiration is a best technique to change behavior opposed to hammering people over the head over numbers and stats. And it's not emotional. It's not emotional. But food and your taste buds are very emotional and very intimate. So I will play to that. That's great. And that, that that gets me excited to some extent because I feel like there are so many, you know, travelable type dishes that can start to flood markets and, and uh, grab and go places that, you know, maybe they don't give you that full fresh out of the kitchen experience. And maybe there are certain dishes that you won't find there and you'll have to go straight to the, the, the local restaurant uh, to, to get certain dishes, but that there is so much potential yet untapped for chefs and companies to collaborate with chefs um, and and for new avenues of distribution to form for these 
calling them travelable, freezable, any dishes that can start in a kitchen and end up on someone's plate at home somewhere else in the world and still give them that warm, comforting, emotional experience that someone's cooked a meal for them or that they're trying something new and delicious. Um, you know, I think we can probably expect to see a, a lot of exciting growth there as we move kind of past this first phase of just kind of asking someone to take home a meat alternative and, and cook it their own way. It's assuming a lot of the consumer, um, you know, and and the goal is not to overwhelm them because a lot of times it's like adopting a new product into your ecosystem is hard enough. And then, you know, layering on the now you have to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> um, you know, some for some consumers, for some consumers, they love that. But for many, it it. it counterintuitive to the problem that you're trying to solve for them and, and make it, you know, easy to use and, and kind of solve for time in their life. So. Neil, I was going to get, get your perspective, putting your, your Plantega hat on because you do something similar in terms of taking these types of products um, in the bodegas in New York. Um, and you're not, it, it may not, you may not be, thinking of yourself as a, as a culinary expert when you're doing this, but you're taking these products and you're putting them in a format that is relevant to the people who are used to eating there. Even if it's just your classic breakfast, New York breakfast sandwich or roll with butter or a breakfast burrito, um, you know, there's an element of, you know, you, you recognize that just putting just egg on a shelf and asking customers to buy it, they're, they're just going to look right past it. But if you put it on a sandwich that looks exactly like every other delicious New York breakfast sandwich they've ever eaten, all of a sudden now people are flooding in from out of town to try it. So, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on just how much that awareness of, of the culinary piece and who you're wanting to connect to plays into getting people to be excited about what they're, what they're trying. I think culinary is everything. I mean, increasingly I realized that's the only thing that sort of matters. Everything else needs to support that. And that's a shift in my thinking, even from when we started Plantega. I mean, I was, and I'm I'm very much a systems nerd. I like to think about how everything interconnects and how we can do things differently. And lately, I find myself thinking more about what's the best format for a certain product. So every time we get, we testing out a new product from a new brand, and we've been launching several new ones in the last few months, the first area we spend the most amount of time is that on in what kind of menu item would this fit perfectly in this environment where someone who comes in to buy the regular meat-based version would be inclined to try ours like where would it best be showcased um keeping in mind the limitations we tend to have in the kitchens and out of which we operate and so we're working within these constructs, and then we're also working within the cultural expectations of what people expect when they walk into uh, a New York City bodega. And that, to me, turned out to become the most fun part of this this whole, um, what started off as an experiment and now is, is mostly is my life. Uh, is um, is trying to see like how what what delights people, what what actually turns them off, what doesn't make any sense in that context, and what small adjustments in technique or flavor that we can make that can just bring our version of that particular menu item uh, meet uh, people's expectations. And then the next step is how can you introduce new ideas that maybe don't quite belong there, but maybe we can start to slowly push the envelope in what's possible uh, to open people's minds. So I think that's that's kind of where we might be heading next. But it's all about the flavor. It's all about the context in which it's sold. And, and the more time spent on that, the more impact you can have, I think. Yeah, I think, Mel, you, you know, you've earned their trust because you've taken something that they find comfort in, right? And they know that when you've changed X, Y, and Z ingredients, they still get the same comfort. They still get the same emotions from eating that. And therefore, there is that inherent trust. So now when you introduce something, they're probably more likely, um, you know, and, and I, I think it's a beautiful conversation. You're in that environment, just like our restaurant, where I do ask if I want to run something when I was like putting dessert on the menu, 
I used to just give it to customers and I'm like, Hey, like I'll give this to you for free. I I just need your honest, brutal opinion. And you can choose to take what you can, you know, there are some great nuggets in there and leave the rest on the table. But I think it's a great um, thing because once that trust is developed, then you can kind of push the envelope into new arenas and get them to try it because I think people are afraid. Um, and especially in that bodega, like people, they're, they're regulars. There's only a limited amount of items. You know, it's always the same. Most people like their bre- breakfast is a very sacred thing. Mm-hmm. Most people like their breakfast the way they like it. You know, whether you're on the sweet school of things or the savory school of things, you bought your coffee the same way. So I think when you're tampering with like something as sacred as breakfast, um, it, you have to develop that like, hey, I'm not going to change your whole morning routine. But trust me, you know, if you like this, you may enjoy this. Just give it a try kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it, it has to be done in, in stages. You know, and given the, the the context of our conversation now, I mean, I I'm, I have to ask this question, which is, where do you? What's next for Dash of Chutney? Where do you take that brand and and the restaurant? And um, I'm sure you're being pulled in different directions and and tempted to to do different things with it. And and it's and I'm sure you hold it sacred. What do you think it needs to do, and what kind of impact do you want it to have? Yeah, I think. Um... One of the things that I learned in this experience um, opening in the pandemic was, number one, be very, at least for me, being very honest with things that I can do and I'm naturally good at and things that, like, really I can do, but I'm not well-suited. So heavy on the operations while I can do it. I've been a, you know, woman, one-woman show um, and have done all of it, including the construction and oversaw all of it. It's not my cup of tea. And so it prevents me from dropping into the creativity and expansion. And so to me, kind of what I do next is is really filling that gap of like who's strong in operations, who's really great at scaling, and then um, really looking at um, where where we can prevent food from ending up in the landfills. And I'm particularly good. I have an immigrant mother. I'm particularly good. If you give me like a not so great carrot and some wilty whatever, I will make you something amazing. And so with that creativity and and knowing that this is an imminent problem, like how do I bring that into the fold of what I do and easily like find a home for those things that normally wouldn't have a home and put my creativity in touch and turn it into something beautiful. Um, and then just get this food to more people, you know, across the country. So uh, having some preliminary conversations of what that might look like um, with different operators and, um, you know, but all very early. But I, I, I would like to, now that I have phase one down, really think about what are some of my unique assets and what are some of the problems in the food system that I can easily solve? You know, I, I, I want to be very manageable with myself. Like sometimes we feel like there's so many problems that we can't really touch any of them. But if there's something that's manageable within my wheelhouse and something that's very true and natural to me and, you know, taking, lonely vegetables and turning them into something beautiful is, you know, something that I love to do. So it's like, maybe that's what that looks like or yeah. Um, but it will be hundred percent plant-based and it will have more of the same kind of what I set out to do, um, make Indian food plant-based accessible to the masses. Um, it will have signatures of that, what that looks like it's to be determined. I mean, you mentioned the food system, you know, what, what specific things are you most passionate about? What would you like changed? I mean, obviously you mentioned food waste, um, but you know, what, what, what are those things that drives you and gets you excited about the fact that this happens to be the, the profession and the the career that you've now chosen? Yeah. I mean, food waste happened naturally because to be very honest, we've raised almost no food at my restaurant, zero. You know, we, we, 
used to boil onions and we would repurpose that water, you know, the tomato scraps we puree and put into the curry. So like naturally, somehow, some way I built this thing where we just don't have waste. We have found a home for everything, cross pollinated a lot of ingredients in multiple dishes. So, um, so food waste just by nature of what, you know, a chef does, um, and it's always in the back of our minds, not from just a uh, operation standpoint, but from a heart standpoint, right? So let's not, let's try to think of three things that we can do if we're already bringing those ingredients in house. Um, and then just, I, I really, I'm really big into this, you know, inspiration piece of like just inspiring people by choice. And if I give them that choice, now I become this like, loved coveted thing that you you made that decision on your own and you came to me with that um so i think just you know more of these like let's assume there's more dash and chutneys then it just happens to be this beautiful offering that exists now where you can go and get plant-based food that you can't get anywhere else that's indian inspired and it changes your perspective on what indian food is and can be then I've done my job. So yeah, inspiring people to choose differently um, and uh, preventing waste while we're doing it. Ben, anything you want to chime in on before I, I close out with my last question? The only thing I have left to say is I cannot wait to be able to visit Dash and Chutneys all over the country, if that's a possibility. Uh, it, it very well could be. That's where, that's where I think... Uh, <laughs> The, the universe is leading me. Well, wishing you all, all the best on on those decisions and, and processes, and I know you'll you'll make the right decisions that feel like uh, you can further the vision and keep the the integrity of the food as as the core, which I think is a beautiful place that this conversation kind of developed. It's about that trust um, and integrity that that you bring to the table right now in this moment, not worrying about what trends of the future are. Or, or what people might want later, but this is what, what your soul is wanting to develop and, and bring to life now and trusting that that's, that's the authenticness that people want to want to connect to and will savor and come back for the most. So thank you for, for putting your focus on that. It's great to hear. Thank you. And Pollock, I'm going to close out uh, on something that will kind of bring us back to where we started this conversation. We talked about your earliest memories of food and uh, what you ate growing up. And what happened when you moved to America and kind of had this this melding of cultures and food culture as well? What do you believe Americans will be eating in the year 2050? Oh, um, what do I... I'll tell you what I'd like them to eat more of. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I, like, I'm on a personal mission to get everybody to love dal as much as I do. Dal lentils, for those of you who don't know, it's like a comfort Indian food of mine and billions of other people around the planet. But man, can Americans please love dal as much as Indians do? And let that be like hamburgers, french fries, and dal. That's my vision. I love it. it's so simple and it's also such a such a such a impactful one at the same time. <laughs> That's what I love. I'm on about te- it. I'm on Team Doll already, so I'm uh, part of the mission. I know. For sure. <laughs> I'm like, where have you met a food that will actually hug you? If you eat a bowl of lentils and you didn't feel like the bowl didn't hug you, it has not done its job. So, man, for the love of lentils. Well, sign me up. I think that's uh, that's a solution to all that ails our food system, at least one amongst the many impactful <laughs> solutions. Um, thank you so much, Bog. This has been such a fun conversation. I feel like we can just keep going on. Um, ben, I appreciate you joining me on this one and uh, can't wait to do this again soon. Uh, and again, can't wait to try the food at a Dash and Chutney. If that little bite I took at Plan Based World was any <laughs> indication of what you can do, uh, I'm definitely missing out on something right now. So I can't wait for that. Uh, well, thank you. I think uh, Brooklyn is a, I'm eyeing Brooklyn as a potential hmm. anything. So don't don't worry. My New York roots are, are very much eyeing to come back to the Northeast somehow, some way. So let's make it happen. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Paul. you. 
You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com